You are listening to the protagonist of the erotic. Produced by Extra Extra. Each episode is dedicated as an act of love to the libidinal ouvreur of a living person. Desired object or location that can be visited in the present day. We discover what it means to define and shape sensuality, framed within the dynamic context of modern urban life. between wedge heels, cosy slippers and patent brogues on your shoe rack, there are most likely a pair of sneakers. Converse with unravelling laces, scuffed Reebok running trainers, or stylish Adidas gazelles. Discovering a pair of discarded Nikes at the back of her closet, an impulse buy off the high street, Anya Aronofsky-Kronberg, details how the everyday sportswear became a treasured travel companion, carrying her from Paris to London, eventually bringing her to one of the most intimate moments of her life. From a conversation with a friend, a self-confessed sneaker devotee who covets a pair of Air Jordan 1s, to the documentary Just For Kicks, a film that features such sneaker heads as Grandmaster Kaz, Reverend Run, and Missy Elliot. Anya mediates the meaning of style and attachment, finding, just below her feet, conduits for tenderness. I'm uh, on the Champs-Élysées somewhere, and oh my God, my heel hurts. I've stopped being able to walk like a normal person. Instead, I sort of shuffle along, lifting my left heel by scrunching my toes up and putting all my weight on the front of the foot to avoid rubbing what must surely by now be raw flesh bonding with my sock. I'm afraid to take my boots off to look. A Nike swoosh rises like a mirage on the other side of the road and I almost yelp with joy. I don't think I've ever been so happy to see a big box store. I uh, cross the street. And hobbled to the sneaker section, which is huge and 
utterly confusing. There's a boy folding t-shirts nearby, young enough to be my son in another life, with pimples on his chin and in head-to-toe Nike. Of course, I ask for help. Um, excusez-moi, est-ce que vous pouvez m'aider? J'ai besoin de basket, um, quelque chose de simple. I must have been a teenager the last time I wore a pair of trainers outside the gym. Navy blue added as gazelles with white stripes, the, the same kind Damon Albarn wore. As a grown-up, all that conspicuous branding seems puerile, muggish, too many logos and anathema to good taste. Though, like any self-respecting fashion scholar, I've read enough Bourdieu to know that good taste is a cultural construct. Plus, they are comfortable. I've got a minor tower of trainers in front of me now, size 40 in every imaginable colorway. I try a few on, but lose heart pretty fast. I mean, all I want is something cheap, unobtrusive. Something to wear while I limp home. I spot a pair that fit the bill pretty plain, 85 euros, black, with white laces and a swoosh. Well, four swooshes, actually. Swooshes all over, white on black. There's no way you'll miss them. They'll do. When I get home, I put my new shoes at the back of my wardrobe and proceed to forget all about them. They stay there for quite a while, in fact, while other shoes, other concerns, life takes over. And then, one day, I'm looking for something. I, I don't remember what, and instead, I stumble on those Nikes again. They still look and smell immaculate, box-fresh, a pair of comfortable, everyday, nothing special trainers, one of millions made in a factory far away. I wear them that day to the gym because why not? And then continue wearing them to the supermarket, running errands, to see friends and colleagues, on travels, to fashion shows. And just as they wheedled their way into my wardrobe, they they slip into my everyday life. And when I start traveling every month from my home in Paris to Homerton Hospital in London, I wear them too. I was talking to my friend Abdul recently. He's a self-confessed sneakerhead with thousands of shoes in his collection. I mean, so many shoes that they've taken over every wardrobe in his house, the bookshelves in his front room, his entire office, and his mom's garage. He told me about falling in love with sneakers as a boy in Sierra Leone. As a kid, he played soccer and ran tracks, so they were useful. But then one day he got to see a bootleg VHS tape someone had brought back from America. Police Academy 4. There's a scene in the movie where a pack of kids skateboard through a mall and then end up being chased by the cops and every one of them 
is wearing Air Jordan 1s. Young Abdul was mesmerized. What we wear can so easily become stand-in for yearnings, aspirations, nostalgia. Because clothes always reflect our histories. They can be powerful and transformative, mythical and magical, and full of both symbolic and immaterial value. In my work as a fashion researcher and writer, I often return to how full of mystery our relationship to clothes can be. I think of a, a lucky shirt or a piece of jewelry that seems charmed or an object so connected to aspirations or fortune that it transforms into a sort of talisman, a fetish. I think of Abdul and his friends nerding out, swapping tips on message boards or WhatsApp threads about where to get the latest iteration of the Air Force One or the Adidas Superstar or the Chuck Taylor and about how the humble sneaker has become something to stay awake all night for, camp outside a store for, obsess about, fetishize. Because I am honey. Go bankrupt for. And I am... There's a lovely scene in the movie Just for Kicks from 2005, a documentary that locates the rise of sneaker culture in the influence of hip-hop in New York in the 1970s and 80s. B-boys, graffiti artists and MCs appropriating shoes worn by basketball players because they were the most comfortable to dance in, stay up all night in, run from the cops in, and because these kids had no money, but of course still had to look fly. They cared for their sneakers. They made them last. How? Well, by cleaning them with a toothbrush if necessary, by filling the stripes in with a felt-tip pen, by washing and ironing their shoelaces. You can hear Jerry D. Lewis or JDL, the legendary MC of the Cold Crush Brothers, explain how it's done. You gotta wash your shoestrings while they're still white. You can't wait till they get the, the skid marks from the holes, cause they hard. So you get your shoestrings, knuckle them up with your knuckles, wash them, wash them. Then when you rinse them out, you take, I used to take my two fingers and put my hand like this and pull them and that gets a lot of water off. Then I take both the shoestrings and take a dry towel, put the towel on top and pull them tight. 
Now, not only am I taking out the water, I'm also straightening my little wrinkles out. So I will either leave them, I will let them dry air unless I'm going somewhere quick. Like the other night, we had to go somewhere. So I watched them quick and I went and got the iron. So I used to take the iron and while my shoelaces was wet, take the point of the iron and put them in between the shoelaces and it would stretch them out. Then I would pull them while they wet like this. See, see how it get bigger now? And used to hit it with the iron and leave the iron on top. And they was kind of fat. I decided to embark on an expedition for an unboxing video of every Jordan ever. Quick disclaimer, I decided to focus on game-worn Jordans. Of course, we know there are 31 pairs of Jordans, but only 18 during his playing career. Each one representing a different stage, a different time. Not just in Michael Jordan's career, but your life. Jordan on the bottom? See like that? February 87. A high-flying aerobat? Rim, rattling jams, keep MJ hovering around 37 points per game. Earn him his first scoring title in these shoes right here. Same box. Oh, man. These are nice. Now, this is a major development. Have at it. These are very nice. Wow. Like, I've completely forgot the twos right now. The popular shoes get reissued at different points. This thing we're holding right here is 14 years old. It's like a museum in here right now. I'm sure you know, as well as I do, what a bad reputation fashion has. It doesn't seem to matter how successful a phenomenon it is socially or commercially, it's still thought of as the very apex of superficiality, frivolity, vanity. Intellectuals who write about it mostly seem to do so only in order to denounce it or else Contemplate it with a sort of wry and distanced amusement. Fashion is the part of culture we love to hate. And yet, though clothing is the perhaps most fraught entity of the material world, laden as it is with paradox and ambiguity, is there any object more closely linked with the human body and the human life cycle than the clothes we wear. There's a line in the fashion scholar Elizabeth Wilson's book, Adorned in Dreams, that describes the intimate relationship we have to our clothes better than anything else I've come across. Garments are objects so close to our bodies so as to articulate the soul. Fashion matters because of it. In getting dressed, we construct the self as image, simultaneously exhibiting and concealing who we are to the world, our armor. But it can also be a failed disguise, much easier to see through than we imagine. We use clothes as marks of our distinction and authenticity, but also as a way to connect with each other and with the past, real or imagined. By virtue of wheedling their way into our everyday lives, clothing transforms into material memories that ensure the past is always carried with us into the future. 
The philosopher Roland Barthes once wrote that the narratives of the world are numberless. Narrative, he said, is international, trans-historical, trans-cultural. It's simply there, like life itself. The narratives we weave around ourselves through the clothes that we wear have always fascinated me. Garments tell stories, and in their subtle communication, we find both language and psychology. Unwanted garments can appear dejected and doleful. It's through use that we give these inanimate objects a soul. Enfin, j'essaye de, de voir en quoi ils sont des, des grandes représentations collectives, oui. rappelant donc par là même ce qu'était le mythe autrefois, oui. et en quoi, malgré tout, ces représentations collectives sont bien de notre temps, sont produites par notre société et par notre fashion histoire. motto is il faut souffrir pour être belle, but the motto of art and of common sense is il faut être bête pour souffrir. Fashion is such an essential part of the mundus muliebris of our day that it seems to me absolutely necessary that its growth, development and phases should be duly chronicled, and the historical and practical value of such a record depends entirely upon its perfect fidelity to fact. Besides, it is quite easy for the children of light to adapt almost any fashionable form of dress to the requirements of utility and the demands of good taste. That's why my Nikes are so special to me. As I look at them, lying now at the bottom of a pile of shoes by our front door, worn out and grubby, a, a pair of nondescript sneakers that sustained me for a year while I visited doctors, being prodded and poked, legs in the air and feet in stirrups, learning to inject myself until my belly and ass were both bruised and painful, messing up right at the end and having to do it all over again, hoping, wishing, yearning for a baby. It's a highly intimate story, out of sight, mostly, the one about becoming a mother through artificial means. Being fertile is to be productive, abundant, creative, being barren feels shameful. You need comfort, tenderness, compassion. So you look for it wherever you can, in people, in your environment, in the objects that surround you and, and hold you. My sneakers did their part by letting me forget that I was wearing anything at all on my feet. One less thing to worry about.
See me as I run to catch the Eurostar. Wait for the number 30 bus. 30 to Hackneywick. Walk across a bleak East London housing estate to the clinic. Stand on a street corner gulping down coffee from a styrofoam cup. Tap my feet in the waiting room, trying to focus on the latest Kim Kardashian adventure in some oil-stained issue of Closer magazine. Notice how all the women here look down at each other's shoes. How careful we are not to meet each other's anxious eyes. My sneakers are a suitable companion. They just are. And they let me be too. Another anonymous woman bearing the Nike swoosh. Well, what would they say? if they could talk. Maybe they would nudge the boots to my right, gently ask how they're doing, or help me figure out why the Mary Janes to my left seem so relaxed. <laughs> what do they know that we don't? Or perhaps they could convince the nurse's sensible crocs to stop for a minute and get their no-nonsense user instead step into my shoes for a moment. Because I'm falling over here and I'm scared. How many miles of endless asphalt haven't I covered in these shoes and in how many cities? Taking shortcuts where there are none, relying on the familiarity of certain routes and city streets, focusing on little changes, a trash can overturned by the wind, a single glove placed respectfully on the steps of an estate, a network of chewing gum in different shades of grey on the pavement, the jitteriness of traffic on this particular day, to avoid thinking about whether life is growing in me or not. There's a kind of voluptuous, almost perverse pleasure in forcing my thoughts where they don't want to go. This is the stuff that our intimate lives are made of. I've thought a lot lately about these types of commonplace, ordinary objects that are part of our everyday life, the non-fashionable, mass-produced stuff that form the backbone of material culture. A pair of shoes made in Indonesia, one of millions created by anonymous hands touched by countless others on their way to a big box store in a tourist trap neighborhood in my beautiful Paris. These shoes that were gentle with me when I needed relief from pain and that I've cared for in return, swapping laces, avoiding puddles, brushing stains away. These shoes that have molded after my feet, bunions denting the sides, soles wore down by my particular way of walking. You probably have something like it in your wardrobe too, a pair of shoes or a piece of clothing acquired in an almost 
offhand way, without much thought and without the impulse to impress anyone. Something inexpensive, meant to fade into the background. How much of our lives isn't made up of these routine purchases worn day in, day out, memories accumulating, sticking to the fabric almost despite itself? There's so much humanity to be found here, so much of us in the accumulation of these small things. These are objects that we shape and adjust to fit the routine of our daily grind that we wear for comfort and to ease everyday existence. Our relationship to them is mostly unconscious, though in repetitive habits, intimacy is born, and tenderness, too. And so, one winter morning in early March, I wake up. It's dark outside. So dark. I look at my phone. It's 4 a.m. and something feels off. My baby girl is moving around. She's, she's restless. A little elbow pokes at me from inside, or maybe it's a tiny foot. I get up to go to the bathroom, and oh my God, I feel it. Wet trickles down my leg, just a little, and then a bit more. It's my water, it's broken, she's coming, she's coming. What am I supposed to do now? I can't think straight. There are no contractions yet. I can't feel anything, is that okay? I wake David up, we Google. I call the hospital. It's okay, it's okay. Everything is going to be just fine. The nurse on the line reassures me, your contractions will start any minute now, she tells me. Come to the hospital as soon as you can. I'm strangely calm now, though my adrenaline is pumping. I take a warm shower, pack my hospital bags with books, toothpaste, fresh underwear, my phone charger. We have some leftover stale croissants for breakfast and coffee, lots of coffee. I get dressed in soft pants and my warmest jumper, my big military coat and a woolly hat. David helps me put my socks and shoes on. My feet are swollen, so the only shoes that fit now are my sneakers. I've been wearing them every day. They're just by the door. It's 5.30 a.m. now, and it's time to go. I move laboriously, deliberately, down the stairs and into the street. I lean on David. My belly is huge and so heavy. I put my hands by my hip bones to support it, and... I feel the little one. She's ready. The metro has just opened, so we take it. Four stops, Gare du Nord. It's already filling up with workers on their way to offices on the other side of town, and we let the escalator carry us up and into the street. It started snowing. Millions of 
tiny flakes that melt as soon as they land on your skin. It's still dark, but the sky is full of them now. They land on people rushing to get to work, on smokers pulling on their last drag, on junkies rolling up their sleeping bags, on cars lining the side of the road, on brasserie canopies, on benches and streetlights and trash cans. My shoes are damp, but we'll be there soon. Thank you for joining Extra Extra on this listening experience. It's been a pleasure to have welcomed you on a journey through this episode of The Protagonist of the Erotic. Please visit us at extraextramagazine.com where you can hear more about our auditory programme and discover further editorial content exploring the intertwinement of sensuality and the city.